0: Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. And I'm going to read the last part of verse 4 and verse 5. And in the ESV it reads Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations." The obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. I want to talk about biblical missions. I want to talk about what it means to be a missionary. What we do in missions. What the purpose of missions is. What the end result and goal of missions is. And where we should be doing missions. Now, we hear of missionaries throughout the history of the church whose stories and whose histories and whose testimonies amaze us and astound us with the mighty works that God did through these faithful men and women. We hear of Hudson Taylor. We hear of James Frazier. We hear of names like William Carey, Amy Carmichael, John Payton, and other missionaries. And man, we could spend a whole week, we could spend a month, we could spend a year talking about the faithfulness of God in the lives of these missionaries and drawing out principles that we could learn and truths we could learn from the lives of these missionaries that God has used in the history of the church. But let me tell you something. These missionaries whose histories we have in the history of the church, none of them compare to the Apostle Paul. The greatest missionary outside of Jesus Christ that God has gifted and given to the church of Jesus Christ so if we want to learn something about missions and its strategy and how to do it biblically I suggest that we study the life of the Apostle Paul and so that's what I want to do a little bit here and the time we have remaining this morning is draw out some biblical principles about missions from the life and the gifting and the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he shares with us here some of these keys in this text. First of all, I want to talk about the person that God calls to missions. In other words, the missionary calling. He says there in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now who is the we that he's talking about here? The author of this epistle is Paul. And Paul in the context is talking about himself. And I looked this up and as I was researching it, the best, the, the best view that I came across was that Paul is using what is called an editorial plural to refer, refer to himself. When he says we, he's talking about Paul. Paul had received grace and apostleship through Jesus Christ. Now the word through is an important word because Paul is saying that the grace that he received and the gifting and the calling that he received in order to fulfill the ministry that God had called him to, that all those blessings, all the blessings of grace, all the blessings of redemption and of empowerment by the Spirit of God are mediated from God the Father through His Son Jesus Christ. Christ. Missions flows forth from Christ and missions flows to Christ, to God, for His glory. So the grace that Paul had received and the gifting of apostleship came through Jesus Christ in order to glorify Jesus Christ. What type of grace is he talking about here? Some say that he's talking about saving grace. Others think that he's talking about gifting grace and that this grace has to deal has to do with the apostleship that he received i'm not sure if paul was really splitting hairs when he wrote these words i think when he says grace he just means grace grace in every sort of way Saving grace. Sanctifying grace. Empowering grace. Gifting grace. Grace that saved his soul, that transformed him, that made him a child of God, that called him with a holy calling, that sanctified him and set him apart, and empowered him to fulfill his ministry faithfully. He says grace and apostleship by saying apostleship. He is talking about the gift of apostleship that was bestowed upon him by the ascended and glorified Christ. Because Christ ascended on high, led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men and he gave to Paul to be an apostle. The gift of apostleship. And with this gift of apostleship came the charge of a divine commission. When he says apostleship, I think there's two aspects of this apostleship that, that are important for the context here. And these two aspects are gifting and calling. With apostleship came the gifting, the ability by the power of the Spirit of God, to fulfill his ministry effectively, to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ, to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God for the conversion of sinners and for the establishment and edification of saints. So gifting and calling. Why is this important? Because he says the reason why he received this grace and this gifting and this calling to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. In other words, bringing about the obedience of faith is dependent upon the grace and the gifting and the calling that Paul had received. What's my point with all this? My point is this. That like Paul, every God-called, Christ-commissioned, Spirit-empowered missionary is a recipient of God's grace, of some form of gifting, and of calling to go to the nations or to a particular nation or people or people group with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this grace and this gifting and this calling is absolutely vital and essential and necessary for the faithful fulfillment of and and accomplishment of the mission. Though not an apostle, due to the cessation of the apostolic office, the missionary nonetheless is called, commissioned, and empowered for the sake of fulfilling his ministry. Just that Paul had received grace. The missionary must have evidence of God's grace in his life and his ministry—saving grace, sanctifying grace, empowering grace, and the grace of the gifting necessary for the fulfillment of the ministry. Why do I say this? Because I have known. Let's let's. You think about saving grace. I mean, that's a given, right? A missionary needs to be saved. He needs to know Jesus Christ. I have known missionaries that give absolutely zero or little evidence of having been regenerated by the Spirit of God. And these guys are being sent to the four corners of the earth and they don't even know Christ. You need to be saved. You need to have assurance of your salvation. If you say God is calling you to missions, you need the grace of God working in your life, not only having saved you, but also having sanctified you. I mean, I know sanctification is both positional and, and definitive and also progressive. We're being sanctified, but the missionary that's called to go to the field needs to have evidence of some form of maturity in his life. The missionary doesn't have maturity. Why? Because when he gets on the field, the people there are going to look up to him. They're going to see him as a model. They're going to see him as an example. They're going to see him as something to imitate. And if he's just sinning or if he's just immature, if he's just not ready yet, It's just going to do a lot of damage. Empowering grace for the sake of persevering in trial. Persevering through demonic resistance. Persevering in the face of confronting the strongholds of the devil. And preaching and praying and ministering. Until either those strongholds collapse or he collapses. requires grace, brethren you think God's calling you to missions, don't dare do it unless you are sure that God's grace and hand are upon you. Just as Paul had received the gifting necessary for the fulfillment of his mission, so also the missionary. Why do I say this? Because I have met young men who say I want to go to China to train pastors. I want to disciple pastors, train them, teach them. And you ask them, "Well, how long have you been converted for?" 2 weeks. Are you in a biblical church? No, I'm still looking for one. Have you ever studied hermeneutics? What's that? I mean, if you're going to go to China to train pastors, you need to have something, some kind of gifting, some kind of knowledge and qualification that causes you to be able to fulfill your ministry. The same goes with church planning. The same goes with any area of ministry. And I say this because sometimes I just hear crazy stuff. You hear a lady who says, I think I'm called to Thailand to establish an orphanage of 572 children. You say, well, how how do you get along in your marriage? How, How do you get along with your husband? Oh, we don't get along too well. I have issues of submission. He has issues of... What about your children? Are your children in order? And you can see they're just getting out of line all the time. She's getting impatient with them. She's getting angry at them. How are you going to oversee an orphanage of hundreds of children if you can't even have your own children in line? If there's no grace and gifting evident there. Missionary needs to be called. That's what I'm saying. Called by Christ to the mission field. Look, I know that there's mission organizations and there's missionaries that'll stand up in churches and they'll say, everybody's called to the mission field. Just get up. Just go. Just, look, I'm not going to stand up here and give you a bunch of statistics about the lost world and try to move your emotions and move your heart so that you just want to go and then tell you that there's no such thing as a missionary calling and that you need a calling to stay, not in order to go. I don't think that's biblical. I think the whole reason Paul's saying this right here is because he wanted to emphasize the fact that he was called and commissioned. How do we recognize a missionary calling in addition to observing the life and the gifting and the involvement in the local church and all that? How? Here's, here's one big thing holy ambition. Paul said in Romans 15.20 and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. It was his all-consuming desire. He is burning with zeal. He is burning with passion continually with this ambition to make Christ known. I think of William Carey that's in his shoe shop. He's working on shoes and what's he doing? He's staring at a map of the world and he's Zoning out. He's burdened. He's weeping over this... He can't even focus on his work. Hudson Taylor. The guy gets rid of his bed mattress to sleep on a board in order to get used to life in China. He starts eating rice and light food while his friends are feasting on American delicacies. And he's not even on the mission field yet because he's burning with ambition. Look, these guys that say, I think I'm called to the mission field. And they can talk about it casually, chewing their gum. And then the next day you talk to them, they say, Well, I think I'm called to stay here. And every other day, they go back and forth, not knowing whether they're called or not. They're probably not called. If you're truly called, you are throbbing with the heartbeat of God for the people, for the nation, or the people group that God is calling you to. And why, why, do I, why do I start out this sermon on missions talking about the missionary calling? Because, brethren, let's just face it. I mean, so much damage has been done around the world by missionaries that are not called by God. Oh, you know what I'm dealing with in Mexico? The bulk of my ministry in Mexico has to do with trying to clean up the mess that is there because of American missionaries. Christianity, Protestantism, evangelicalism exists in Mexico because American missionaries have taken it there. The churches, pretty much all the churches can trace their roots to American missionaries. So if they're preaching hyper charismatic doctrine, they're practicing methods of decisionism, Producing false converts. Not understanding the biblical gospel. They think the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They think the only attribute of God is love. And all this stuff, why do they believe that? Because that's what they were initially taught one generation ago or two or three generations ago by American missionaries who were not called to the mission field. They didn't have this grace. They didn't have this gifting. They didn't have the knowledge of the, even the basic knowledge of biblical truth that they should have. I spend much of my time evangelizing. Where? In the Christian churches. In these conferences that we go into, I evangelize Christians. Christians are getting born again, Christians are getting saved. It's the same sad state of the professing church that we see here in the United States of America because the Christianity that exists down there has been exported from here. If you're not called to the mission field, you can really do a lot of damage. More damage has been done by uncalled missionaries than any other thing. It would have been better in many cases to leave Catholicism You know, in Acts 13, it talks about in the church at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Saul and Barnabas were there. What were they doing? They were involved in the life of the local church. They were contributing to the local church with their gifting, they were preaching and teaching in the local church. The church recognized their calling, their gifting, what the Spirit of God was leading. Ideally, missionaries should be sent out from the local church. That is the biblical pattern. The missionary calling is recognized when God puts His hand on a man or on a woman. And as they are involved in the local church as discerning godly men in leadership discern that calling, they confirm it, and they release those persons The mission field. So, what's my advice for you? If you think you're called to the mission field, my advice is be faithful to your local church. Be involved in your local church. Contribute with all your heart and soul and all your gifts and all your strength to building the local church and see if the brethren confirm what you think your calling is or if they don't. But I I, I would say this, although only some are called to the mission field, specifically as missionaries, all are called to be involved in missions. Every child of God should be participating, interceding, giving, holding the rope, strengthening the home base, using resources, whatever's Whatever they can, whatever's necessary to pour it into the mission field and to further the cause of Christ and the extension of the kingdom of God around the world. How much time do you spend interceding in prayer for the sake of the nations? How much time, how how much are you really... You know one thing that really helps? Reading missionary biographies. Just read those things and it just stirs you up with burden to pray and informs you about missions. And I encourage you, read biographies of historic missionaries and begin to pray and intercede and spend time informing yourself about all that. Okay, let's talk about the missionary task. Paul says... We receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. What is the obedience of faith? I don't think it's saying faith is obedience, even though it is. And I don't think it's saying that faith just leads to obedience. But I think Paul is really encapsulating here In these words, the idea of conversion and discipleship. Paul is laboring. Paul is preaching in order to bring souls to faith in Jesus Christ and to the resultant obedience that springs forth from and results from that faith that they have in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the task of missions. This is what we're trying to do. Evangelize. Preach the gospel, proclaim the glories of Christ, and disciple and teach and train. I mean, th- this, this really is what Jesus said in Matthew 28, is it not? When he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's go to the nations, preaching Christ, preaching the Gospel, conversions are made, baptisms happen, local churches get established, believers get discipled, and in that context, they get taught to obey everything Jesus commanded. The obedience of faith. Joyful submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the task of missions we go out there in order that this may happen so how did Paul fulfill the Great Commission Matthew 28 how did he labor to bring about the obedience of faith well in the in the in the first place he just simply preached the gospel I know that's simplistic I know I didn't mention building programs I know I didn't mention uh going and giving away large bags of rice and grain I know I didn't mention all these other things that I see and digging wells and humanitarian efforts he preached the gospel if all if that's all we're doing is helping human beings but we're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ then our mission work is wood, hay, and stubble. That's all it is. It's going to burn up. It's not going to last for eternity. It's not going to pass through the judgment to be the gold and the silver and the precious stones that God's Word talks about. We must preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the primary mission of missions. This is extremely important, Paul Paul says in Romans 1-1, that he set apart for the, to the gospel of God. And the gospel is right here in the context. He, he defines and summarizes the gospel in verses 3-4. to 4. He says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager, he's burning to preach the glorious gospel of God. Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say this. All mission work that doesn't have as its task the goal to bring about the obedience of faith through Gospel proclamation and Gospel teaching is not biblical missions work. Period. You know, there's so many places in the world that are just suffering from a weak, anemic, partial, half, watered-down, cotton candy gospel. It's just everywhere. I mean, I hear from other missionaries all over the world. This has inundated the entire world. What is the primary need of the mission field? It's preaching and teaching the Word of God. I mean, that's what it is. I talked with a pastor who's going over to... to, to I, I didn't talk, I talked to the pastor, told me about a pastor that's going to Africa in order to train pastors. What is he going to teach? He's going to teach on 1 Timothy. Out of all the, all the things, and he said that the reason he's doing that is because these pastors just need to learn that they can open up the Bible and understand it. And see how the flow of argument You know, the flow of argument in the text, its context, interpret it correctly, see it expounded, see it applied. And he's convinced that that is the greatest need of these pastors in these countries. I had a pastor come out one time. We were doing an evangelism event in his town. And we were sitting around talking and he told me that God has blessed him with a large library. And he's just going on and on about this library. So he said, you want to see it? I said, sure. So he gets up, a really poor pastor, and I get up to follow him. He says, no, no, just wait here. I'll bring it to you. I can't imagine bringing Emilio's library to you. (laughs) But this is what he said. So I'm kind of puzzled. I'm scratching my head, and I sit down. Maybe he's got it in, like, electronic format or something, you know? This guy comes with a stack of probably six books. He tells me all about all these books, and a few of them were just, at least a couple of them were bad. But I mean, that's that's what we're facing. This pastor who thinks that he's theologically grounded and has a large library and has received extraordinary blessing just has six books. Biblical. Preaching and teaching is the need of missions. And of course, all this takes place primarily in the context of church planting. I'm convinced from studying the life and the missionary labors of the Apostle Paul that the primary task of biblical missions, in addition to preaching and teaching, is establishing biblical local churches and building the church if the mission work isn't going to plant a new church, then it needs a plug-in to an already existing church that is solid and build it and edify it and expand its ministries for the sake of the kingdom of God in order to bring about this obedience of faith that Paul is talking about here because all this takes place in the context of the local church. Look, if you... Because I know some on hearing this will say, but what about people that aren't called to teach and preach? Should they go to the mission field? Is there a place in missionary work for those who are never going to be called to teach and preach the Word of God? Yes, there is. But I believe that they need to team up with and labor with those missionaries or those natives that are already preaching and teaching and plug into these teams with their gifting for the sake of working toward the same vision of bringing about the obedience of faith. Because digging wells doesn't bring about the obedience of faith and neither do humanitarian programs. They can help in addition to preaching the gospel, but they cannot replace it. They must not be primary. So, if you would say that your gifting is not teaching and preaching, but you feel called to missionary work and missionary labor, then I would encourage you to get to know missionaries that are already on the field. Do your research. Get to know churches in the country and find out where your unique gifting and calling can plug in in order to most glorify God and most result in the obedience of faith among the nations. Here's a quote from John Payton. This is just glorious. I mean, you really think about the obedience of faith and the joy that it gives the weary missionary after pouring himself out on the field. I mean, if you read this guy's biography, it's absolutely amazing. This guy said, John Payton, he was a pioneer missionary to the New Hebrides. In the 1800s, he said, at the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, talking about the first communion service, once stained those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake of the emblems of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus Himself. That's what it's all about. Seeing these pagans, seeing these these idol worshipers who are serving their sin and loving their sin and in darkness and serving false gods and you see them hear the Gospel and even reject the Gospel. And you think they're so hardened against the Gospel and you think that it's never going to prevail. That you're never going to see fruit and you're laboring and you're preaching and you're pouring yourself out and you're praying and you're pleading with them and you're even weeping over them from time to time. And then God gloriously saves them and transforms them and turns these idol worshipers into worshipers of the true God. Glorifying God. Glorifying Jesus Christ. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. Loving God. Serving God. And becoming your most vital and your your most gifted laborers on the mission field. Just glorious. And that's what it's about. The obedience of faith. In the third place, the missionary's purpose. What is our purpose? What is our end goal? Yeah, we talked about the obedience of faith. People obeying Jesus Christ in the context of His church. By means of faith, but that is not the end result. The end result, the end goal is what Paul says here in verse 5, when he says, for the sake of the name, for the sake of his name, talking about Christ's name, actually. So, why did Paul labor so hard? Why did y- y'all are studying 2 Corinthians? Why did he go through all of that? What motivated him? What drove him on? What produced this, this burning, holy ambition in him? What kept him going? The guy gets stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead. And he gets right back up and he goes into the city and he preaches Jesus Christ. What drives a man like that? His name. It's for the sake of His name. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul had had a heavenly vision. Paul had seen the glory of of Christ. That is what missions is all about. What It says for the sake of His name, Christ's name here signifies His true character and significance. Ultimately, it refers to the totality of His revelation of Himself and of man's recognition of and correct response to this revelation. In other words, for the sake of his name means recognizing who he is and giving him the praise which is his due. So it's talking about his fame, his reputation, his honor, his glory. Paul's whole driving force continually was this. When he was commissioned, the Lord told him in Acts 9.16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. Paul had had such a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ that he counted all else but rubbish. Trash. Another possible translation would be dung. Excrement. For the sake of winning Christ. Because he had seen that glorious vision. This is the driving force of missions. And this is the ultimate goal and end result of missions. This is the missionary calling that we love Jesus Christ so much. That we love the glory of God so much that we're even willing to suffer for it. We're willing to deny ourselves for it. We're willing to take up our cross for it. Let me tell you this. God called, God sent missionaries. And those burning with a vision of the glory of Christ are typically not those Christians who are insisting constantly on their freedom to enjoy Christian liberties. Watching sports. And doing all kinds of other things. These are those who are not only willing to deny themselves of even lawful things, but there are those who lay down their lives for the sake of the name and endure hardship for the sake of the name, counting it all a joy and a privilege and an honor. Like Moses, he he esteemed the, the persecution for the sake of Christ. Is greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt. Not the riches of Christ. Not just the glory of Christ. Being identified together with Christ and suffering. That was a greater treasure to him. Suffering. Identifying with the cross. Than all the treasures of Egypt. And in fact, Paul wasn't alone in being a missionary sent out for the sake of the name. Because 3 John 7 says for they have gone out for the sake of the name. All missionaries are laboring for the sake of the name if they're God-called, God-sent missionaries. Malachi 1.11 says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, My name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to My name. And a pure offering for My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Piper said missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. What does he mean by that? Worship and not missions? Because we do missions because worship doesn't exist. They're not glorifying God through Jesus Christ. They're not worshiping Him. They're not... Yielding their life to obedient service. God-glorifying labor. They're not honoring His name. It's not about the happiness of man. It's not about alleviating human suffering in and of itself. It's not just about giving poor sinners a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, the goal of missions is the glory of Christ. As Piper also says, he says, We do missions because his name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. And he says, The glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not reverenced. The greatness of God is not admired. The power of God is not praised. The truth of God is not sought. The wisdom of God is not esteemed. The beauty of God is not treasured. The goodness of God is not savored. The faithfulness of God is not trusted. The commandments of God are not obeyed. The justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God is not cherished. The presence of God is not prized. The person of God is not loved. And that's why we do missions so that all that would happen so that His name would be glorified. So this is the ultimate purpose to bring the peoples of the world to the joyful obedience of faith for the sake of glorifying the name of Jesus Christ like they should. What is Christ's name worth to you? Have you seen His glory? You know, John starts out in his first epistle, and he says, "We've seen on that which our hands have handled, which we've seen, which we've heard." And he goes on, he says, I, "I've experienced Jesus Christ." He's an eyewitness. But I ask you, can you say the same thing? Not in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense. Have the eyes of your faith, the eyes of your heart beheld His glory? Because you can't see the glory of Jesus Christ. You can't know who He really is. You can't behold His beauty and His splendor and His majesty and not just fall madly and passionately in love with Him wanting to glorify His name among the nations. Have you caught a heavenly vision that utterly ruins your life like Paul did? That just Robert Murray McShane said, when you catch a vision of the glory of Christ, then all the other things just lose their savor and their sweetness. Like when you stare into the sun, everything else becomes dark. When you stare into the Son of God and behold His glory... All the things of the world. All the attraction of the things of the world. All the sinful things that you used to pursue before. All the toys. All the cars. All the games. All the other stuff. It just becomes dark. It just fades away. It just goes from the affections of your heart. Because your eyes and your vision and your gaze is fixed upon Jesus Christ. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or do these words just go over your head? Because this is the driving force and the goal of missions. Oh, if you go out to the mission field and you're really not laboring for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ, it's just going to be a disaster. Just a disaster. What is His name worth to you? What is it worth to us? Is His name, the sake of His name among the nations, is that worth you giving up a hamburger for? For the sake of fasting and praying and interceding for the nations? I mean, just think about it. When's the last time you really pressed in and fasted and prayed for the sake of the extension of God's kingdom around the world? I don't say this to condemn. I say this to exhort and to encourage. If you haven't done it, if you're not doing it, then do it because He's worthy. Finally, the missionary's territory. What does Paul say? For the sake of His name where? Somebody? Somebody? Among the nations. Among the nations. Paul uses this Greek word to signify a number of different connotations. I'm looking at commentaries over this and they're all divided and they're all splitting hairs over it. And some say it means one thing and some says another. Here's the four options. Number one, in the, in the Septuagint, this word was often used of foreign nations that didn't worship the true God. In other words, pagans. Those without the knowledge of God. Second, Paul often uses this word to refer to Gentiles in distinction from Jews. It's translated that way sometimes. Gentiles. Third option, it can refer to geographic regions that are marked by national boundaries. Some commentators argue for that meaning here. And fourth option, it can refer to a nation of people, that is, a people group or a tribe of people that speaks a certain language and has a certain, their own distinct culture. So which one of these options seems like the best option here in this verse? Knowing the Apostle Paul, studying his writings, I think if we would go up to him and ask him, Paul, which one of these four did you mean here? He would say all of them. Paul was laboring for the sake of the name. In other words, to see pagans converted to the worship of the true God, to see Gentiles saved as well as Jews being the apostle to the Gentiles, to see all geographic regions reached with the gospel, and to see people from every nation, people, tribe, and tongue worshiping Jesus Christ. Paul wanted all of it. That is why he was laboring. But there's something significant here in the text. Paul speaks. If you just look at the words, think of these words to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. He labors for that. He speaks. As if he's sure that this is going to happen. The obedient, there was no doubt in Paul's mind that this mission was going to be accomplished. That he was going to succeed. That God's kingdom would be established amongst the nations. So when you think about this, I mean, how could Paul really be so sure that all the nations would come to the obedience of faith? Sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? I mean, if he says he's a missionary, he's the one laboring, and that all this is going to happen, it's almost as if he's boasting in his own ability. Isn't that a little presumptuous? No, it's not, because Paul's faith was not in his own ability. Paul's faith was in the eternal purpose of a sovereign God to bring about what he had ordained. To accomplish His eternal purpose. And Paul's faith was in the power of the gospel to bring about what God had purposed. If God is sovereign, if God had decreed the salvation of His elect from among all the nations... And if he's sure it's going to happen, then that means Paul also had faith. And the power of God is revealed in the gospel of Christ in order to accomplish this. This has been God's purpose all along. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis in 12.3, God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed later in genesis 22:18 he says and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice in your offspring we know from galatians that that's christ christ is the seed christ is the offspring of abraham and it's through christ That now the Gentiles and the nations are blessed with the blessing of justification and receiving the Spirit of God and of salvation with the blessing of Abraham. So this is prophesied all through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis. The nations, the nations, the nations. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. It says in Psalm 22, which is a Messianic psalm talking about the death of Christ. Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And all the way through to the book of Revelation, what do we read there in chapter 7? Verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. From Genesis to Revelation, this has been God's plan to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of His name among the nations so that people from all the nations, from all the tribes of the earth, from all the languages that are spoken would be there glorifying God and glorifying the Lamb, saying salvation belongs to the Lamb, to to our God and to the Lamb. They're not saying salvation belongs to themselves. They're not saying they contributed to their own salvation all kinds of semi-pelagianism and Arminianism die immediately the moment a believer enters glory. Because there's no semi-Pelagians or Arminians there. They are saying that salvation is of God. And that's why Paul is so sure. Because he knows that God had promised this to Abraham. He knows that this was in the eternal purpose of God that God had a number of his elect from all the nations and he knows that it was prophesied all through the Old Testament all the way into the revelation he had received as an apostle and I'm not referring to the book of revelation that was given to John but I'm talking about the apostolic revelations that Paul received so missions can't fail our cause is invincible. Our mission is certain. And our King shall conquer. It is written. God is sovereign. And God is powerful to regenerate with His Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel in order to accomplish this purpose that He has ordained. So we can have confidence that as we go to the nations, as we go to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I go down to Mexico, as we go to the uttermost parts of the earth to preach the gospel, the doctrine of election, the sovereignty of God, which comes by implication here in this text, is a not, not a killer to the missionary cause. It is not fatal. It does not harm it. It is its foundation. It is its guarantee. Paul endured all things for the sake of the elect so that they too may obtain eternal salvation which is in Christ Jesus. And I know God is merciful. And I know here in Revelation it says there's a great multitude which no man can number. It's just so many people. I know the way is narrow, but the final multitude that's there, it is a great, of saints who are singing the praises of God. So I know that the mercy of God, the grace of God is huge. I know that as we go in faithfulness to the missionary cause, that God will save, that God will regenerate, that God will call, that Christ will build his church. So when we get involved in missions, we can be assured that as we are doing it biblically the way that God has laid down for us in His Word, that we are co-laboring together with Christ. We are co-laboring together with God, the highest privilege of in the whole world, and that God is using us to fulfill His eternal purposes for the redemption of people from all the nations over the face of of the whole earth. This is missions according to Paul, and I've just scraped the surface. But I'm going to close here with the missionary hymn. I have never heard this thing sung, I had difficulty finding it even on the internet. But here's the words to the missionary hymn meditate on these words. Lord, Thy church on earth is seeking thy renewal from above. Teach us all the art of speaking with the accent of thy love. We would heed thy great commission, go ye into every place. Preach, baptize, fulfill my mission, serve with love and share my grace. Freedom give to those in bondage, lift the burdens caused by sin, give new hope, new strength and courage, grant release from fears within Light for darkness, joy for sorrow, love for hatred, peace for strife. These and countless blessings follow as the Spirit gives new life. In the streets of every city where the bruised and lonely dwell, we shall show the Savior's pity, we shall of His mercy tell. In all lands and with all races, we shall serve and seek to bring all mankind to render praises, Christ to Thee, Redeemer king amen